KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. There is an impressive organization working in Philadelphia to deconstruct abandoned buildings and salvage materials for reuse that would, under normal circumstances, be thrown away all the while offering career development and job training. We wanted to learn more about the Philadelphia Community Corps, so we caught up with Executive Director Greg Trainer. Give a listen. So to start, let's just kind of set the baseline. What is the Philadelphia Community Corps? So we are a deconstruction job training nonprofit, uh, which is, you know, the simple way of saying that is we teach people how to take buildings apart and salvage materials for reuse. And it's a great way of putting people to work. You know, we go out and while we are taking buildings apart, we have job trainees working on those projects as well as in our warehouse processing the salvage building materials. And it's a good sort of entry level training opportunity for people. And it's also, you know, an environmental win and historical preservation win. So it kind of checks off a lot of boxes. But the idea is the main mission is to create opportunities through reuse. We're looking at uh, new emerging industries that are in reuse. Deconstruction is essentially an environmentally sustainable alternative to demolition. Saying, yeah, we're going to take the building apart. We're going to clear the lot so you can build whatever you're going to do. or We're going to gut it out so you can renovate however you need to renovate. But while we're doing that, we're going to save everything that we can from the landfill uh, for reuse. Talk to me a little bit about the origin of the idea. So the origin is actually as a tool for the city of Philadelphia to fight abandoned housing blight. Going back to 2009, when I had the idea, I was coming back from being in the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. I uh, went down there right after high school with a program called AmeriCorps National Civilian Community Corps, NCCC. And I was down there for about a year in the Gulf Coast, mostly in Biloxi, Mississippi, and New Orleans. And the idea was, you know, we were helping people gut and clear out their houses so that they could begin the rebuilding process. And it's, you know, pretty straightforward when you're in a disaster zone where people are very overwhelmed with how messed up everything is. And they are just needing someone like a volunteer group to come in clear the stuff out of the way and give them a sort of kickstart so that they can go down the road of rebuilding. When I came up here to go to school, I thought I was putting all of that behind me. I also, uh, during that time, traveled down to Peru after the earthquake in 2007, where we were uh, clearing rubble mostly from the big earthquake that happened down there with the same, org- one of the organizations I worked with in Boston, Mississippi, an organization called Hands On, I went down to Peru. And then I came up here to go to school in 2008 at Temple University. And I was a journalism major and I'm living in North Philly on, you know, off campus. And I'm surrounded by abandoned houses everywhere I look. And I had an internship with the Philadelphia Inquirer. They had this thing called Student Union 34, which is basically all these student journalists having a niche. And my niche was I was gonna write about poverty issues and the causes of poverty. So I started writing about the abandoned housing blight and I was researching the history of this. And once I started to really get into the statistics that there were 40 to 60,000 vacant blighted or abandoned houses in Philadelphia, and that it was basically so much land that if you could aggregate it all together, it would be the size of center city Philadelphia. That's how much 
land was abandoned or blighted throughout Philadelphia. I kind of had a you know light bulb epiphany moment where I was like, well, this is just another disaster. It's just like the post-Katrina Gulf Coast or the post-earthquake Peru, where they just need a group of people to come through and clear out what has been destroyed so that the rebuilding process can begin. And my idea was we create a program like that that could go through the neighborhood, clear out all the abandoned housing uh, for the rebuilding process. Uh, and while we're at it, why not make it a job training program to create as many jobs as possible? And why not make it a deconstruction program so that we're saving as much from the landfill and we're preserving as much of the architectural history as possible as we're going? The thing that I didn't anticipate, you know, in 2009, I was a very idealistic student and I thought that the city of Philadelphia would immediately be like, wow, we have a big problem with abandoned housing blight. That's fantastic. That's all we need. I did not anticipate how much the city of Philadelphia would not be interested in a solution to abandoned housing blight. Uh, so for years, as I was trying to get that going, I couldn't get it off the ground, couldn't get funding. The main thing was, you know, it's, it's very expensive to run a program like this, especially when it gets into things like insurance. So I couldn't get it going in 2009 and it fizzled out. And then I tried again in 2011. And for that time, we lasted like a year and a half, two years, mostly just like doing neighborhood cleanups, picking up trash, uh, park beautification projects, still could not like make cross that barrier to taking down abandoned housing, the funding that was required for the tools and equipment for paying job trainees for covering insurance costs and stuff like that. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and I put on hiatus for two years I went back to school for business. I got certified in nonprofit management and fundraising management at the nonprofit center in LaSalle. And I took some urban planning classes and I relaunched it in 2014 as a job training program. It seems like an insignificant difference, whereas before it had been neighborhood revitalization and now it was a job training program. But the difference was we could start a lot smaller and we could partner with other programs like Mural Arts Program, Philadelphia Anti-Drug, Anti-Violence Network. Uh, youth build power core, we could go to these other programs and say, hey, we have a program that we're going to teach certifying people in deconstruction techniques. Will you send your job trainees to us? And that's what happens. These organizations sent their job trainees to us. We train them in deconstruction. We also got them OSHA 10 construction safety certified. And we got them out onto our projects. And while we found that the city of Philadelphia wasn't interested in clearing out abandoned housing play, uh, the private market, the real estate developers, property owners could get a big tax deduction for donating building materials to us. And that's what made it all work. Finally made it cost effective was we were getting job trainees from these programs because we didn't have the grants or funding to hire people directly ourselves or insure them. Uh, but those programs, the bigger programs who have been around for longer did, and that there were private property owners who could get a huge, huge tax deduction, like very significant uh, for donating all the two by fours, windows, doors, mantelpieces, everything else that's in the building. So that's what made it cost effective for them to pay us to deconstruct their buildings and salvage the materials for reuse. So it evolved iteratively over time to arrive at where we're at now. So give me some context old ballpark how many people are taking part in the job training and how many properties are you guys working on? So over the years, we've on average done, you know, anywhere from like 15, 15 to 60 people a year going through the job training program. 
And they came from a variety of partnerships. A few of them I mentioned, like Neural Arts Program and Philadelphia Anti-Drug Anti-Violence Network, probably the two biggest uh, sources of job trainees for us. And they would send out, you know, 10 to 15 people at a time. And we would either do a three-month program or a six-month program. So we could do that several times a year. And then properties, we have done, you know, it's hard to say. I would say we probably do about a dozen projects a year. And those projects can really range, though, in scope and size. So we've done everything from, like, West Philly High School, which was our biggest project ever. That was 250,000 square feet of building that we salvaged, you know, science lab countertops and chalkboards and lockers and all sorts of, like, the, the doors from the classrooms, uh, and, you know, maple, tongue groove, gym flooring to, you know, we've done a whole lot of row home clean out like an interior gutting projects. That's probably been the majority of our projects, but we've also done some very major projects that have been office building, churches, factories, stuff like that. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, like mansions out on the main line and beach houses at the Jersey shore. So the, the scope has definitely widened a lot from where we originally started where we were trying to get rid of a bin housing blend and focusing on row homes. Um, and then the other thing is it's all kind of different now because we, we put our job training program on a hiatus when COVID started. We had to. Uh, so we are just getting all of that going again after having for a year and a half, basically no job trainings and just operating as like, all right, we are uh, a reuse center. We are training demo contractors in deconstruction and facilitating the diversion of building materials for reuse. Uh, but we haven't had job trainings for a while. And now we're planning to restart that in the next couple months, finally bringing them back. You talked about the range of projects, so I know there's not an average job. Every job has its unique challenges, but can you just kind of give me an overview of, you know, you get a project for, let's just say a row home, uh, a mm -hmm. smaller one. Kind of talk me through the process of how you guys go from, you know, a real estate developer reaches out, says... I've got this property. I want you guys to do your thing, you know, kind of quickly walk me through uh, the, the process. Yeah. So, you know, usually we get a call where someone says, you know, I, uh, I want, I got to gut this building out or I got to take this building down. I, you know, I want to do the right thing, but I know it's expensive to do deconstruction, but I heard I can get a big tax deduction, which makes it cost effective. We then get them an estimate of the potential tax deduction and the estimate is just a range. So it might be like anywhere from like, if you were to deconstruct this building and donate all the materials to us, you might get a tax deduction in the range of like 60 to $100,000 tax deduction once you add up all those building materials. So they don't, it depends on how much they salvage. And then we, you know, we get them a quote and all that kind of stuff. And once they're committed to do the project, we're going through and we're starting out just take like a moving company with all the furniture, taking out all the furniture of the house, everything that's in reusable condition, all of the appliances, and then we're starting with fixtures, kitchen cabinets, plumbing fixtures, like sinks and bathtubs, light fixtures, like chandeliers and sconces and uh, all, all the electrical switch plates and stuff like that. We're taking all that stuff out of the house. Uh, you know, there's probably a lot of like trash and stuff like that that we got to throw out just to even get to the salvageable materials. And then we're taking off trim and molding. We're taking out doors, uh, windows, mantelpieces, uh, you know, we get it down to, we're just looking at an emptied out building, 
and we were smashing off all the plaster and sheetrock. Can't save that stuff. So, so that stuff's still going to, you know, ideally a recycling center. So it doesn't end up in the landfill. It gets processed. Uh, and we're salvaging. We even save things like the lath, like the strips of wood from behind the plaster if we can. And we're taking out all the non-structural walls, saving the two by fours, prying up the flooring. And a lot of it is just like methodology. And it's kind of like uh, the medicine that, you know, demo contractors wouldn't choose to take on their own, but because they're basically being required to by the deconstruction contract that either we or the developer are giving them, it's good for them, but they wouldn't choose to take it on their own. So normally they're used to just smashing and grabbing everything, throwing it in the dump as fast as possible. And we're just saying, listen, if you just do it like this, instead of like that, the flooring will come up just as fast, but you're not going to break it all. And it's not going to all splinter into a million pieces. So we're kind of like operating like a deconstruction consultant with the demo contractor, you know, salvaging all that tongue and groove flooring. So, every, you know, everybody wants to have that hardwood flooring now. So we save that stuff. And then we're saving the structural lumber, the roof decking, the exterior brick, the floor joists, all the way, you know, all the way down to the foundation. Uh, you know, we're not saving the foundation. It's concrete or, or stone or whatever. Uh, we can't reuse that stuff, but all the lumber, all the brick, the doors, the flooring, uh, the windows, the mantelpieces, and even the tile, like if they have like antique subway tile and stuff like that in the bathroom and kitchen, we'll save all of that stuff. The cabinets, the furnishings, the plumbing and electrical fixtures, we will divert, divert all that stuff in the landfill. Usually it's being loaded into trucks that are going to our reuse center, which is the other side of our operation. We have our deconstruction program that's taking place out in the field with our deconstruction projects. And then we have Philly Reclaim, which is the other name people know us by. And that's our building material reuse center. It's our brick and mortar storefront. We have a 20,000 square foot warehouse in Tacony in Northeast Philadelphia. And that's where all these building materials are being brought over the course of the project. So just like a demo contractor would normally be hauling away the waste and going to a landfill, except now they spent more time up front sorting out what's reusable and saving it into trucks. And then that stuff's going to Philly Reclaims. And what little cannot be saved is going to go to the dump. But at that point, you're talking about 10 to 20% of the building that has to go into the landfill rather than, you know, all of this beautiful architectural uh, craftsmanship that we'll never see again if it goes into a landfill. It goes to Philly Reclaim instead, where we sell it to fund, again, our job training programs and our nonprofit resources. You mentioned the warehouse. I, that was going to be my next question is how much of a challenge is the the warehousing and the organization and, and stuff like that? Because I would imagine if you're not doing that right, it can get overwhelming. It's a huge challenge uh, and it, it can be very overwhelming. You know, I, I usually describe it as organized chaos. And, you know, we're sort of a part of a very niche group of people who are inventing an emerging industry right now. And it's been going, Philadelphia is actually way behind the curve. People have been doing this all over the country for a couple of decades now. And, and there's a, a deeper history behind how far back it really goes. But the, now at this point, you know, there's no like inventory systems that are designed for reclaimed building materials, for example. So there's not like a lot that's like designed for the way that we work. And if you think about it, everything happens in reverse of a normal industry. In a normal industry, you pick a customer and you say, what does that customer need? Okay, they need 
X widgets. I think they'll buy this amount. So I'm going to produce this amount of widgets and I'm going to sell them to them. Well, for us, we get the widgets first and we have to figure out who the customer is. We're like, all right, well, we got like, uh, you know, now this, this like weird uh, chandelier that's very funky looking. We have to figure out who would want this thing. So it's all kind of happening in reverse and it's just coming and we have truckloads of stuff coming all the time, just like any thrift store does. You know, you never know what's going to come through the door. We have our projects where we know it's coming. And then anybody who's like clearing out a garage, clearing out their basement, renovating their own house can drop off stuff here anytime they want. It's very similar. You know, the, the relationship between Philadelphia Community Corps and, and Philly Reclaim is very, uh, very similar to the relationship between like everybody knows Habitat for Humanity and Habitat for Humanity Restore. We have different sorts of inventory and we save different sorts of things. Uh, but it's a place where people, it's a donation drop-off center. So keeping up with that, organizing that stuff, it can be really crazy. Uh, but we do, you know, we, we do the best we can to post it all up as it's coming in, inventory it, process it. You know, we got to denail the lumber and c- cut off any cracked or broken bits, stack it up nice and neat. We need to clean the mortar off of any brick that gets dropped off and then palletize the brick. And everything else is going into our pallet racks, into our shelving. And, you know, we've got a hardware aisle and a cabinet aisle and a plumbing aisle and a flooring aisle in our warehouse. And, uh, you know, we keep up with it the best we can. We'd probably be in a lot of trouble if people didn't come here to volunteer every now and then. Uh, You know, we really love it when people come here and volunteer and help us get caught up with it all. But it's, uh, it's, it's always changing what's, what's here. I'm curious, like we just had, it, it seems like the prices have stabilized, but lumber prices were just bonkers there for a while. Did that lead, did you see a surge in people coming to you and maybe, you know, developers, whatever that normally would just go their normal route, tried to find a, a different way to, to get some of the wood they needed? A little bit, but not as much as you would have expected. Uh, and it's mostly just because of like the awareness and education issue. Like people really just don't think of reclaimed lumber for those purposes. People generally come to us for reclaimed lumber when they want to build like a really cool dining table out of like reclaimed floor joists and have like that really thick, uh, you know, look uh, of an industrial chic table. So that's what people are really going to buy reclaimed lumber for most of the time. They're not thinking like, oh, I could use that two by four as a two by four, uh, even even though you, you th- technically could, but it's non-standard dimensions and, and stuff like that. So mixing that in with uh, newer lumber would be difficult. It could be done, but it would be difficult. So we didn't see too much of a bump there. What we did see was the donation values rose because the fair market value of lumber was rising. So what people were getting for donating stuff, what they were able to deduct against their taxes, that actually went up a lot. So our donors were seeing an increased fair market value of their tax, uh, their charitable donations. Uh, But we weren't seeing a big difference in what we could actually sell it for or the demand for it. Um, Because it's different. Most of the stuff that we have People are buying it because it's 200-year-old lumber, 300-year-old lumber, and it is unique wood that you're not going to see again. You can't get anywhere else than a store like this. And people are buying it for different purposes than for structural lumber, which is fine because we like to see it being used for 
something that's going to show off the high the high quality of this old growth lumber. So what are the aside from the lumber, what are you know, if you were to walk me through your warehouse, what what else is the most prevalent? What would be the the thing that you have the most of that that uh, and conversely that you're able to turn around the most? So our top sellers, our most popular items are doors. Uh, everybody wants like a unique door, doors of character, especially if you're restoring a historic house and it has like 25 doors in the house, 24 of them are the original doors. And the 25th door was broken at one point and replaced with like a cheap holocore Home Depot door. That's when people come into us, like new homeowners buying a house and they're trying to find a door that matches the original style. We get lots of people coming in for doors or for like, they want to have a front door to their house that has a lot of characters, very unique. They come in here for that. Uh, Reclaimed flooring. Everybody's ripping up the carpeting from the 80s and the 90s, and they are wanting to have the hardwood tongue, you know, tongue and groove flooring exposed so that people can see that. So people come in here for for that a lot. Uh, We sell a lot of tools. Uh, We actually have a tool library program, uh, very similar if you're familiar to West Philly Tool Library. Uh, where people can borrow tools and we get tons of tools donated and we have tools for borrowing. We also have tools for selling. People come in here for that a lot uh, just because we have so many and we sell them so cheaply. And then also just in general, reclaimed brick and reclaimed lumber. And I'm talking about like the big stuff. So the floor joists, the beams, you know, that like gigantic, you know, 10 by 12 Southern yellow pine beams, that you can only get at a place like this or that reclaimed red brick. If people are trying to have uh, an exposed brick facade or something like that, they need to get some reclaimed brick for that. We get a lot of people coming in here for that kind of stuff. And we sell that stuff just all day long as, you know, as fast as it can come in, we're, we're continuing to move those sorts of things. We do also have a lot of like random vintage and antique items that we find when we're going through these old buildings, but those are the main things. It's sort of like the bigger, uh, building material commodities are, are the main things that people come here for. Can you salvage just about every house? I would imagine you've come across some, you know, maybe they were hoarded, maybe they weren't taken care of properly at all. Do you come across somewhere there's just not much you can do? Or if you know what you're doing, you can get a good amount of stuff out of just about anything. It's definitely more than people expect that we can salvage. You know, people, a lot of times people are like, oh, it's a hoarder house. It's not worth it. And and like that kind of stuff doesn't really stop us. It's like, yeah, it's a bunch of trash. You know, what? we'll get rid of the trash. There's probably hardwood floors underneath there uh, that could still very well be good. Or the floor joists or the bricks, like that stuff isn't affected by if it if it's a hoarder house. And a lot of times with those hoarder houses, they actually do have some like buried treasure you know, underneath all the stuff, they'll have some antique dresser that is like amazing. Um, so that kind of stuff, not too much. The only times when it, there's not anything we can save is like if there was a fire and all the lumber was destroyed, or if it's like just bom- like completely bombed out, like the roof has collapsed down into the basement. Even in that situation, we'd be like, well, we can save the brick. Uh, and we've been talking to the city and the city, you know, has like imminently dangerous buildings that they knock down all the time. And they always they have said to us before, well, there's nothing you want in there. Right. And I said, yeah, well, we want all the brick, like all of the brick, even if the whole interior of the building is collapsed, 
we will take all that reclaimed brick all day long. And you can even knock it down with the machine and then sort it out while it's on the ground if it's not safe for people to go into. So as much more than anybody expects, we can save. The only times when it's really not worth it for us to save it is when it's too modern because, and you have like, it's just basically cinder block instead of brick and a bunch of like cheap Home Depot lumber and, um, you know, OSB, like OSB for sheathing, uh, you know, those particle board flooring or part sub flooring or particle board uh, roof sheathing that kind of stuff it's kind of ironic like the modern stuff just got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because that's how we use modern engineering ingenuity is to build cheaper crappier things and that kind of stuff isn't really worth saving for us a lot of the time um, but if it's an older building like most of philadelphia's housing stock or the region's housing stock it's going to be worth saving and it's a lot it's a lot more than people expect you mentioned when you were trying to get off the ground, you know, you were kind of surprised the city wasn't interested, but you've mentioned now how the different mural arts and all you work with it. And you mentioned that the city said, Oh, you don't want anything from that. What is your relationship with the city now? Now that you, you've kind of got this thing running for a few years now, is there more interest from their standpoint or is it, if you're not asking, reaching out, you don't hear much. So yeah, it's it's uh it's political, you know, and it's complicated. And um, there's it's a it's quite a big bureaucracy we've got here in Philadelphia when it comes to getting anything done to deal with all of that red tape. So essentially, for years now, we've been here steadily growing on our own with almost no institutional support. We have gotten like some like thousand dollar grants here, two thousand dollar grants there, but that's basically it. Never enough to like run our job training program. So we've always had to do our job training through partner programs that get more funding than us. And we've always uh, just paid for, you know, we've been leasing warehouses, renting warehouses and doing the projects with private partners. I have this entire time been having regularly having meetings with this agency or that agency. And um, unfortunately, what happens, what I've seen basically is a big runaround where, you know, I meet with. L and I, and they're like, oh, you know, our buildings are all imminently dangerous. You wouldn't really want those projects and you couldn't move fast enough for those projects. You should talk to PRA because they can seize buildings that are problematic with eminent domain. And we go talk to PRA and PRA is like, yeah, well, you should really go talk to like land bank because really those are the properties that like nobody has a plan for yet. And, you know, you talk to land bank and they're like, well, you know, you should really go talk to like PhilWorks because you should start by getting a grant for a deconstruction program. And then PhilWorks is like, well, you know, really doesn't make sense unless you have like a partnership with PIDC. And you just go from agency to agency to agency. And I met with council people. I met with state representatives. I've met with nearly every agency that has a hand in the pot. But because what we do is so holistic and multifaceted, it would really take a coalition of agencies and departments all saying, yes, this makes sense. Let's do this. And that I, what I have seen, what I've experienced in, is that in Philadelphia, that doesn't happen unless the decision, the leadership comes from the very top. So unless all the way at the top, the decision is made for all these agencies to work together none of them have the authority or ability to work together because they are all just basically siloed and they, 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 they cannot just, they basically cannot make a decision or cannot 
do anything or implement anything together unless the decision is top down. So because we haven't really gotten there to that point, it hasn't happened yet. I'm hoping now, and, and based in my, my strategy, if you want to call it that, has been to say, we're going to do what we have to do to survive with or without the city, which is we have all these private donors who are getting us projects. And that's what really keeps the lights on and helps us make payroll is that we have people paying us to deconstruct buildings and we're selling the architectural salvage. So without grants with, with, or with very little grants and with very little individual donations, we're a financially sustainable nonprofit organization. If we had the grants and funding, we could employ hundreds of people. We could become a central drop-off center for the entire Philadelphia region that could divert 80% plus of building materials from the landfill, alleviating a huge burden on the, the city and the region's waste stream. Uh, we could be doing so much more, but we are sustainable right now on our own without the city's help. Now, what I am trying to do is just go back to them time and again, whether it's quarterly or, or every year, I go back to them and kind of check in and say, is now the time right? And every time I meet with these agencies, they all love what we're talking about. Like there's, we never gotten a negative response from any of them. They, yes, they tell us go to a different agency because I don't think we have the ability to help you. But they've all been like, we love what you're doing. We support you. Let us know if we can help, but we can't do it. So maybe try this other agency. Now, so the the, the desire is there. There's a sort of coalition of, of people that are ready to go if the decision is made to pull the trigger on this. Um, we have a network of supporters throughout these different city agencies. Um, it's kind of just like, it's going to be a timing thing, I think. And my hope is that the time is very soon because I'm looking at the city right now. We've got a massive crime wave that studies show is strongly linked to people being out of work and idle. And that the number one thing we can do to reduce violent crime in our city is to give people jobs, to put people to work. That is evidenced time and again by studies. Uh, so we know that we've got a crime wave and we, and we know that the, the solution is creating jobs. And we've also at the same time got a completely overwhelmed sanitation system where our sanitation workers are overworked, they are injured, they are they're basically uh, out of work and they cannot keep up with our waste stream. And there's a huge problem in our city with building materials being short dumped all over the city. Our sanitation centers won't, won't let you drop things off if you're a contractor. And if you're a homeowner, you don't have a truck to transport anything there. And if you did show up in a truck, the sanitation center wouldn't let you drop off something there because you showed up in a truck. So our, our system for processing waste, especially building material waste, is failing and everyone's pissed off about it. And we've got a violent crime wave. It seems to me like the momentum should be there in this moment to say, we've got a solution here for both of these things. Because 40% of our waste stream is building materials and 80 to 90% of that waste stream is divertible for reuse. So roughly 30 to 35% of our waste stream doesn't need to be in our waste stream at all. And it would create hundreds of jobs if the city just said, let's do this. Let's, let's pull the trigger. Let's actually do this because every other city in the country has already made that decision. And we can see from them that it works. I know so much of what you do is driven by volunteers. If somebody hears this, wants to help, 
or wants to get involved in the job training, either either track, what should they do? Do you need volunteers with specific skills, or could someone completely unskilled like myself walk in and you could put me to put me to work? I always, you know, everyone always asks, "Do you need help?" And I'm like, or you know, when do you need help? And I'm like, every day, every day, all the time. We have a twenty thousand square foot warehouse. It is very difficult to keep up with the amount of donations that are coming through here. We always need help. The best way to help is to reach out to us and say. Hey, I'd like to come volunteer on this day. And we are 99.9% of the time going to say, yes, please. Thank you. Uh, I don't think we've ever told anybody, no, don't come or, but who knows? But the, the point is we always need help. People could just come here. The best way to do is to reach out or say, hey, I'd like to come out and do it. We are in the middle of switching. We have an online volunteer platform that people can sign up on, but we're in the middle of switching it over like this week. So now is not the, the time to sign up to our website, but you could literally just email or call us and say, hey, I'd like to come out and help. And we're going to say, that would be wonderful. We really need help. Uh, we, so there's you don't have to be skilled, although there is skilled work to be done here. Uh, we're very used to, as a job training program, teaching people how to do things. So we'd be very happy to show you how to be helpful here in the warehouse. But anybody from the, the young and physically able to uh, to the you know people who are differently abled, we've always been able to find a way for people to help here. Whether it's you know organizing the donations or moving heavy piles of lumber, there's plenty to be done here. So please reach out and come help. And that number <laughs> and that email, can you give it to us? Uh, yeah, info info at and just our store name phillyreclaim.org.org. That would be the best general email email inbox to reach us at. And our store phone number is 267-343-4242. So that is either one of those works. And you could also honestly just show up here. But it's a heads up is always appreciated. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.